All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another 20-mile podcast with your hosts, myself, Mike Williams, and Gabriel Barsante. And again, we're really excited to be here with another founder to hear about their Founders March. Uh, we've got a really interesting interviewee, Jason Morehouse, who's co-founder and CEO of Checkfront. Checkfront is based in Victoria, BC, and is made up of a team of 65 people, which for this city is a pretty big team. Jason was born and raised in Toronto, spent about five years in New Zealand, and then decided to sight unseen uh, transplant himself in Victoria. I did. It's been a pretty good uh, journey so far. Jason's here with his wife, three kids, one dog, two cats, and enjoying uh, island life with his hobbies of hiking and camping and, and Netflix. Maybe yeah. not all together, but... Um, uh, Jason also has a background, uh, he says he has a degree of life and was, a, was the CTO and has a background in, in self-taught programming and was a hacky coder as he described it. Our, and Our devs will agree. <laughs> they probably don't let you get, get in there too often. They, they revoked my access. <laughs> uh, but uh, on that note, he does have a superpower which I think is, is pretty great. He has a really great all-round understanding of each area of the company by working in each of those different areas. So such a great value as a, as a CEO to understand basically what every employee goes through on a day-to-day basis and how that impacts the vision and, and where you're going. So uh, it's a pretty strong superpower. Uh, so this time I'll hand it off to Gabe and we'll go from there. Well, welcome Jason. Thanks, Thanks for Gabe. coming on the show. So what can, can you tell us about Checkfront and what it does? Yeah, so we're an online booking system uh, for tours, activities, um, experiences uh, is, is our main focus. So if you think about the whale watching in the Inner Harbor or bungee jumping, uh, zip lining, that's kind of our main focus for our customer base. And we, we're not a marketplace per se, so a really easy way to think about it is we're close to Shopify, but instead of selling... Um, T-shirts and coffee mugs. Our our customers are selling um, their services and time. Okay, that's, yeah. that, that's a great analogy there. Mike touched on your background there, and you, and you were raised in Toronto, and then you lived in New Zealand. And this sort of aspect uh, for Checkfront touched a lot on the experience as well as some aspect of travel and, and leisure as well. Yeah. Uh, Where did you get the, the the idea to to, to build this? Um, does it have anything to do with the, your moves and experiences? Yeah, I mean. I've always had a persona in my head of being a outdoor enthusiast and rugged mountaineer, which is not entirely true, but um, you know, New Zealand's a big travel destination, obviously, an outdoor um, activity destination. Um, and uh, you know, whether it's uh, hiking in a Milford track or bungee jumping there, it's, it's a big destination. So we came back to Canada and I, I when we when we moved to Victoria I worked with a, a local startup here um, but had kind of realized that I had been building product for probably a decade for other companies um, I did have a small startup in New Zealand which is, is technically still running so wanted to build something interesting and and meaningful which I know is a very I'm kind of a wannabe millennial in that way um, <laughs> versus uh, you know just chasing money. So we had a small family at that point and struggled to struggled to book things as 
um, activities with our families, whether it was a ski trip or you know a whale watching tour or uh, anything to get out of the house, um, where you know booking flights and accommodation at that point was no longer a, a novelty. Um, booking these smaller um, activities with small operators, you were often faced with uh, email forms and um, PayPal buttons and you know, very arduous uh, things. So we knew that there was an opportunity there um, and set out to, to kind of build a, a solution for it. That's great. And you see a lot of what you just mentioned, the startups that when you tie in with your own values and, and your own the experience that you've had is where you identify that pain point to sort of start that this product. So when you guys get founded, when did you guys start? 2010. Okay, yeah, um, so that nine years. Yeah, and it was, it was pretty, small potatoes for, like it was literally myself in my basement for uh, a couple of years, uh, building out the product and trying to figure it out. We came at it from the consumer side, mm -hmm. so we were frustrated as consumers uh, booking this stuff, but flipping it around and really understanding the needs of the, the merchant was a, you know, a big, a big task. And we were somewhat naive as to uh, their requirements. Mm -hmm. I knew what I wanted to see as a consumer. I wanted convenience, uh, but understanding the businesses was a big jump. Okay. Um, so at this point, you already had some X number of years of experience before you, you started this. Can you tell us a bit how you got started in your career and worked your way to where you are today? I can. <laughs> um, it's a long journey, um, speaking of the, the 20 mile. Uh, so halfway through high school, I left to work at a stock market firm just because you know learning for me was always difficult in school I could just never get it so I, I left school at 15 and got a job on Bay Street in Toronto which was which was kind of cool I realized that was that was pretty stupid although it was fun <laughs> and went back to high school and finished that but also continued to struggle with that that environment so after high school, I was always interested in technology. I think I ran a BBS back in, way back, which is... Sorry, what's a BBS? Yeah, I know. Nobody knows now. Blackberry it was, it, smartphone? It was pre-internet, pre so everything was done through dial-up. And so I was, you know, 14, 15, and actually made money, which was really got that entrepreneurial bug. I mean, I might have made $1,000 or something, but... Uh, um, so the internet came along, I'm only 43, so it's not, <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> Just started early. So I had a strong interest in technology and I, I figured out that I could learn it on my own. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't need a ton of instruction. So fast forward, uh, I, I found a job at a internet service provider in Toronto, it was one of the first ones, and started in, in technical support. And this one is this, so we're talking like mid to late 90s or? Yeah, that would have been 95 or okay. 6 or 7, something. I don't know. So the, it's really taking out the internet, it's beginning to get consumers' homes and. Consumers' yeah. home is all dial up, um, you know, it, speeds were increasing. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, it was a really exciting uh, company um, and a ton of learning and a ton of ability to move within the organization, which is kind of what we built here, I, I hope. Moved, you know, kind of taught myself programming, 
moved into network operations, learned all about um, systems and architecture. And then that company got acquired. I was kind of burnt out and we had some stock options and uh, I cashed them out and everybody was saying, don't cash them out. I got $2,000 and uh, bought a ticket um, as far as w away as I could, which was New Zealand. Um, yeah, I went down there with a uh, thousand bucks in my pocket and the idea was to stay there for six months and I ran out of money in about two months and picked some fruit for a while and then um, decided I wasn't great at picking fruit or, or manual labor and, and found a, a really cool tech company there that I, I worked for for five years. And, and this is, uh, now it's past the uh, dot-com bust at this point, I guess? So or did I, you survive that in New Zealand? I left in 2000, okay. so it would have been yeah, in around there. Um, and then we got back home uh, in 2005. Okay, and that's when you arrived in Victoria here? Well, we arrived back in Toronto, Ontario, um, and uh, we missed geography and ocean, and um, so we... No, when you say we, yeah, it was, did you meet your wife there? No, I actually met her at the at the um, ISP. Oh, okay. Yeah, as well as my co-founder, interestingly enough, so it's a long story. Um, so yeah, we, we spent a bit of time there and just realized that um, it was no longer for us, and um, I had saw a picture of, of Vancouver Island and it looked like New Zealand, so... So we picked up. New yeah, we picked up and came to Victoria. We had uh, uh, my son, who was born in New Zealand, uh, in a backpack and two backpacks. Uh, that was two thousand and six. Wow. Wow. So it sounds like you really learned by doing very hands-on approach to. It's kind of the only way I do. It's it's unfortunate because it's, it's the hardest way to do it. Um, I, I would prefer the opposite, but. But sort of is one of the best ways to do it because it gets ingrained in your brain, right? It does. Working with it. Yeah, but it's lots of trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. It can be frustrating at times. Yeah. And then, so you came here and then, and then that's when you started Trackfront when you arrived in, in Victoria. Yeah, yeah. I did a little bit of consulting for a company in New Zealand and then that was just the time zones were awkward uh, and then started with um, Revenue Wire. So I was their first employee and kind of, um, or second, I guess, to the CEO, and, and started and, and built out that initial product. Okay. But also with a technical skill set or background role in, That's right. in these companies, right? So yeah. when you transitioned here into that CEO role, how, what was it like for you? It was terrifying. <laughs> um, so it built out the, the product here. Um, we had a small support team and I, I was in my basement for, it seemed like, forever, and um, I felt like I was kind of losing my mind and all of my social abilities, and uh, so we made the decision to open up a small office so and start to scale the, the, the company and the team, um, uh, which was you know, probably even further along than we should have, um, if that makes sense. Uh, so we opened up a small office and we hired um, our first five Victoria employees all at once and uh, opened up at the space station down at uh, Fort uh, and they all showed up on the first day and I remember thinking I have no, 
idea what to tell these people. <laughs> yeah, I was, I just, you know, they showed up and I was like, you're a designer, you should design and, uh, you know, you're a copywriter, start writing. And yeah, it was pretty scary. Um, How were you funding it at that point? Like It was all bootstrapped. I mean, it was bootstrapped till 2015. So we were, we were growing at the pace of our, our business, which picked up, you know, really in 2013. So it was uh, three years of, of kind of grinding it out. So lots of learning um, in those years, but it was a really interesting and cool challenge um, mm -hmm. uh, to, to go through. Yeah, um, just before we started recording, we started chatting about how, because you touched on all the different departments, right, all different roles, you have a very good foundational understanding of what each one, what it takes to do well. And when you're starting, there's a joke with chief everything officer because you have to do everything. Yeah. Uh, how do you manage going through that and, and keeping pace with the business? I don't know. Um, I think back, like, I don't know if I could do it again. I mean, there's, it, it was fun and exciting um, and, and grueling, but, you know, I was, I mean, I was coding and answering the phone. Like, we'd have customers that would call up and report a bug, and I would change the code on the on the phone, and just tell them to refresh their screen. And, <laughs> and at one point, I had to create a persona of a of a support person, which was uh, the name of Ella, which was the street we just lived close to. And people would call in asking for Ella because I felt really weird about being the CTO and responding to technical questions. Um, so there's a lot of like pretending you're a big company early on. Um, and uh, what you have to do um, and you just have to figure out stuff as best you can you know you're doing probably a, a half-assed job at it but um, you got to do it yeah what um, you know as you went through all that bootstrapping and you know being the chief everything officer and then you, you come around to 2015 because that's kind of when I started to hear about check front and raising money and you know how much can you talk about raising money and, and how you've done that and whether those were like local investors and stuff um, what you can share but also what that's done for Checkfront yeah nobody really knew about us I mean we didn't do a great job of embedding ourselves in Victoria and Viatech we actually applied to the Viatech Accelerator in 2012 and they rejected us so thank you Dan <laughs> um, we need more jabs at Dan. In yeah. Uh, so again, we just continued to grow at the pace of our of our customers, um, which started to pick up. And then, I think we pitched. I think we pitched Brazil once or twice, and 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 we tried to like do the. You know, connect with some Valley people. Um, I went down to forty eight hour, hours in the Valley. I don't know if you know that program. Yep. Um, early on, like 2011, and I, I, that was also terrifying because um, it wasn't my aim to be rubbing elbows with VCs, and uh, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I did a pitch deck on the plane on like a four-inch, you know, those old um, smart books. Um, anyway, that's that's a whole different podcast. Um, but as Really, when we showed up in Victoria, I think it validated us. Um, and once we started to go out to and, and 
rub elbows with uh, some of the local angels and entrepreneurs. Um, we had known Andrew Wilkinson for, for uh, uh, probably a couple of years, um, was probably the first one that we had worked with. Um, so we, we started to make a bit of a statement by showing up and here we are, all of a sudden there's this team um, in, a, in a startup um, office that seems to be doing something. In fact, I think Razul's comment, uh, who's our, our lead investor, that we had just moved in beside Tiny Mob, and I think he poked his head in and, and, and said, you guys are still alive, because we, <laughs> we had pitched him probably a couple years ago prior to that. Um, so the fundraising component was pretty organic. Um, Razul and, and some of the, the closer angels that, that he works with you know, seem to understand the opportunity, and uh, you know we were able to meet with them and, and a few other um, potential funding um, partners, uh, all local, and we gotten all of a sudden three offers from three different angel groups, uh, you know, within the space of a month, which was weird because we couldn't get money for five years, and we ended up going with the cohort of, of twelve, you know, great entrepreneurs, um, pretty much all local or Vancouver, um, that, you know, bought into it. It wasn't a ton of heavy pitching, um, you know, validation was there. We were able to grow and stay alive uh, for five years um, on our own, which, you know, it's hard to do, so you don't need a ton of heavy selling if you're able to scale with, uh, with zero capital. Did you feel it was true that they were investing in you versus the, the company? I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they'd met, uh, my co-founder Grant had come on uh, in 2012, 2013. Um, so he, he was, at, um, he did kind of the, the sales uh, side of it. So we had met with them and uh, I hope so, you know. I hope it's that and, and the, obviously the traction that we had. Right, yeah, the combination of the two. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned a co-founder. Um. Yeah, so we had actually started the business together, um, but he uh, he kind of stayed uh, at his job until there was really something to sell. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, he's, he's now our VP of business development. And he's located in Vancouver. That's right, yeah. How, how's that one, you know, working with the co-founder and having it be outside of Victoria with the rest of the team? I mean, we were all remote to start, so it didn't matter. Um, and part of the reason I ended up switching out of CTO to CEO is because we were growing here, and all of a sudden, you know, that it's really difficult. Um, uh, I think, I think it can work. I think you either are all remote or yeah. somewhat centralized until you can branch out. Um, I mean, having a co-founder is great because you can vent and share frustrations um, but you know it's like a marriage so yeah. it's also challenging yeah uh, just back to the fundraising uh, can you disclose how much you raised um, in total we raised and this was in actually due tranches so it was 475 Canadian in the first round so not a ton it was enough to test out a few theories um, and then a carry-on of 800k Canadian, so 1.2 in total. And then how did that 
change the, the direction or like how you run the company, both kind of good and bad? Obviously, you have more fuel for the fire, but now you have other people that you potentially answer to or, or feel responsibility towards. Yeah, well, it, it does a couple of things. Um, it builds in some accountability that kind of isn't there early on. Um, you're a bit wild west. Uh, so I think it did add some accountability and some expertise. Yeah. Right? Because, uh, I mean, you don't really know what you're doing half the time. Um, so, you know, having 12 angels who have gone through fundraising and exits and all the trials and tribulations of, of building a company um, helps tr tremendously. And then the, you know, you got to get you got to get a return on that money. Right. So, so it does add some added pressure, you know, mostly in a healthy way to continue to grow and scale, which you know we, we did mm -hmm. and still continue to do. So when you say accountability, do you have a formal board or do you have an advisory board? We have a formal board. It was fairly, I mean, it was coffee with Razul and Andrew sometimes, um, and then. Uh, it's it's more formal now, but it was mostly just checking in. How are we doing? How can I help? Which is, I think, what you want early on. I mean, later, once you do the venture, venture dance or something, then it gets much more complicated. But our, our stage, that was really helpful to have people you could call on. I mean, I don't want, like, there's a whole list of names there, but we know what they're good at, and I'll call them when I need them, which is pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. We, we had coffee recently and I, and I asked you the, the question of what, what kind of CEO I feel you are, right? Like there's, you know, obviously you've been all different types within the company, come from kind of the tech programming side. Where, where do you feel like you're, you know, best as a CEO or what, what how would you describe yourself as a CEO? I have no, no idea. It's really hard. It's, um, I remember posting on the, this is a bit earlier on, uh, on the, I don't know, there's a Facebook group for, for some of the local entrepreneurs, startup founders. How do you know, this is more like how do you know if you're doing a good job? You have a board, which are, you know, they want to make sure you're growing and that's, that's how you're doing a good job. Um, you have employees that your retention kind of reflects how you're doing, but you're, you're never going to get an honest answer from them around what they perceive as your strengths, uh, unless you ask them outright and have a good relationship. I think um, it, there's the, the fact that I have done a lot of those jobs so I can empathize with what they're doing and the struggles when they're having a hard day uh, in technical support uh, with some angry customer. Uh, I know how hard they can take it. So. I think that's one strength. It, it tends to be also be a weakness because if you're a generalist CEO, then you know you're you're kind of doing a lot of things poorly. I'd like to think that I'm genuine and transparent, uh, and I think that goes a long way. I mean, if if you're able to build trust within your team and and in your company, I think that's like half the battle. Yeah. If you're able to build a culture that is uh, inviting and open. I mean, I think it's one of the core responsibilities. I'd like to think that I've contributed somewhat to that. Yeah. And then, you know, later on, it's really about making sure you're hiring the right people. 
uh, in some cases to, to fill the superpowers that you don't have, um, which is very important, and, and making sure that those you know, initial values that you thought a, a great company would be um, are reflected in the people you, you hire. You mentioned some of the building that team and the culture of trust and transparency. Can you tell us a little bit about how you and your co-founder are consciously or unconsciously sort of, sort of building that and choosing the right people to, to, to join and grow to what you have today here? Absolutely. So, I mean, going back to, you know, those days of answering, uh, like, Windows 98 support calls, um, we saw with that business the how much, like, amazing customer empathy and support drew the, drove the success of that business, and we felt it was really important to, to build that in early on. So, you know, amazing customer empathy and technical support was the initial foundation before we you know, had core values and whatnot. And that's, you know, inherent in our DNA today. And that moved on from just, you know, customer empathy, which is really important, but also making sure that there's team empathy and, and understanding. And I think that's how that really developed, is, is making sure that the lovey-dovey that we have with our customer is also inherently um, through our company. and. You know, I think that's, that's, I mean, it was defined later on and we, we built out core values, but they're reflective of, of that. And what are some of the changes that you've noticed you've had to adapt to as the team sort of doubles or triples in size and the culture continues to evolve in that way? Yeah, well, and, and to go back to the, the other question, you have to make sure that you're hiring those people that are reflective of that. So you're finding them and, you know, we have a, a kind of firm you know, no asshole policy, which I think was in our initial uh, core values. And, you know, sometimes there's great performers that are absolute jerks and you have to pass on them um, because they will ruin your, your culture. You might miss out on some deal or whatever it might be, but um, ultimately keeping that team unified and whole is really important. And again, that goes back to the, the role of a CEO so, you know, as it's grown, it was really easy early on when we were in a, probably a room as big as this. This was our first office, this boardroom, which nobody can see on a podcast, but it was really easy to maintain that. You knew everybody, you could go out to lunch, and then it would grow, and you could no longer, uh, you know, take the whole team to lunch. And you didn't know every single, you know, thing about somebody's weekend when you became you know, 20 or 30 people. And over time, by nature and by design, the teams get a little bit more siloed, which is a really difficult thing for early employees to, to go through, and myself. Um, because, you know, early on we knew, everybody knew what was going on and, you know, how I was feeling that day. And um, But it, it changes and you can't do a ton about it. Uh, I mean, we host town halls, we um, are very transparent with our data. All of our employees know how much we make and if we've had a good month or a oh. bad month and you know, as much information as we can give without barraging everybody with data. So maintaining that transparency is, is really important. Uh, it gets difficult and you forget and you know, sometimes you think everything's going great and then you realize that you've all of a sudden gotten another kind of commu communication gap and you have to address it within within the company. Do you use, you talked a lot about core values and some of the 
things you've discussed about that. Do you use any sort of like framework, like strategy framework, like a one-page strategic plan, scaling up, those sorts of things? We didn't, and uh, um, we brought on Mark Holder, who, uh, I mean, it was never, everything was very unwritten uh, early on, and Mark came in, and, and go back to superpowers, um, you know, strategic frameworks and strategic planning and mission statements and core values um, was something Mark really was passionate about. So he came in, built all that out, um, and you know he he kind of takes up that side of the business now. Whereas I, I tend to uh, lose focus quickly on some of that stuff. Cool. Not my superpower. <laughs> um, what can you tell us about the future of Trendfront? Like where you go in? Yeah, I mean we're we're full full speed ahead. Um, we've done a lot with a little uh, a little capital. I mean we have competitors that have raised um, in some cases you know twenty times as much of us as as we have and have done you know at par or less uh, on our traction. We've got a ton of obstacles ahead, and we always have. I think the I mean when we started nobody cared about tours and activities and online bookings like literally you know some of those early investor discussions if you were there were in person it was it was kind of eye rolls whereas you know really 2013 2014 it picked up because you had companies like airbnb and booking.com you know one of the biggest companies in the world expedia you know, even companies like Marriott and, and, and who are all interested now in, in tourism activities. So the timing is really, you know, we waited it out for, you know, eight years, but um, it's really come to a window where we think we can ex execute on a, on a much bigger plan. Whether we raise capital or just continue to kind of stay in that bootstrap mentality is, is to be determined. There's lots of interest and opportunity, but you know, equally, if we think about the, you know, the, the, the values of, that we have with our customers and the ones that we extended to our team, um, we would only entertain uh, another partner, be it Venture or some other capital partner, if they line up with those values. And trying to find that in a financial institution is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> but they have to be excited, as excited about the space as we are and they have to line up with what we want to do with the company. So we did start to look around and funding kind of Q2 of last year, uh, and we had some interesting offers, and, but to date we haven't yet found that full alignment. So we will just push on until we do. You mentioned the industry as a whole and sort of the direction that it's going, and it's an interesting point that you see now you know, Airbnb or Expedia, but these booking places are really looking not just for the place where the users stay, but the whole, the experience as a whole is what they're looking at. Yeah. Um, can you speak about, about that and where you see yourselves coming in as well? Well, if you think of like Expedia, um, you know, when you go to whatever, Seattle or Victoria, you know, they've got your flights, they've got your accommodation, and the next thing they want is that experience. And, and you see with, um, you know, millennials in particular, they want great experiences. And that's really picked up a lot of the interest and attraction around experiences. Because sure, if you go to Niagara Falls, you're gonna go on the Maid of the Mist, you know. Um, but maybe, you know, that's not what everybody wants to do. So 
the experience inside of it is, is very interesting and you're seeing those uh, you know new experiences come up and, and, and kind of the non-traditional um, non-landmark experiences I mean there's I don't know what five escape rooms in Victoria now and like axe throwing and you know those are you know we've got customers you know many customers in those segments so I think people are just looking for new interesting things to do instead of the Bouchard Gardens and so you're seeing a lot of that stuff pop up um, and that's that's kind of where we step in and what over the years with this specifically check from but your journey as a whole uh, what's been your biggest challenge um yeah i don't know there's like hundreds of them uh, <laughs> there's there's i mean from a from a company standpoint standpoint we, we were building something incredibly complex which we set out to do early on and we didn't want to build something that was passive and there would have been much easier ways to to make money i mean i could have just done like affiliate marketing or something mm -hmm. and, been, and been you know quite successful at it sorry that's not that's a knock on you uh, <laughs> i just meant like we going back to building something meaningful is we wanted something that solved a real problem and that you know had longevity, which was which we knew would be a long uphill battle, and it has been. The biggest challenge was doing it from literally zero, and from a personal side, I mean that was, you know, three really difficult years. You know, bouncing mortgages and uh, you know sacrificing a lot, and and having a family that supports you was critical. And just driving on, I think the the obstacles are. It's the same with building any company. It's um, you don't know what you're doing, you know, unless you've done five times. You absolutely don't know what you're doing, and you know, outwardly, when you're speaking to investors, of course, you absolutely know what you're doing. You've got this business plan and this vision, but when you you know quietly speak to other founders, um, you know, you share the terror in your, in your eyes uh, as to you know trying to do something from nothing uh, is really quite difficult. It's really interesting that you've, that you've said that a couple of times. It's like, you don't know what you're doing. And amongst founders or CEOs, there's a lot of discussion, but there is a certain, you know, how do you be vulnerable, but at the same time, not to other people, right? Like your employees and your team. Yeah. And even like at home, your wife, you know, they want to see you, you're being confident, but at the same time, there's things you just don't know and you do need help with. You've got this, you've got this, you've got this uh, thing in your stomach. You kind of, emotionally know what you want to do and you've got this thing in your head so you know what you're doing but you're just executing and and you're you know it's difficult I mean uh, Terry you know often says to me if I have a hard decision she'd be like well you know what you're doing and I you know I oftentimes I have to sit I have to say it in my head um, it's kind of like crap I don't I don't know but um, but it's it's common um, yeah. it's you know self-doubt creeps in sometimes and fear of making the wrong decision you know can be debilitating but uh it's also you know part of the fun um versus sitting in a cubicle and being told what to do you know is is also terrifying yeah you definitely you know as you're talking you know you're, you're very transparent and honest and i'm sure that that obviously it's worked out well for you just to like you know be that way with investors or potential advisors so that they can freely and openly give you advice. And sometimes when you talk to entrepreneurs or leaders, they don't show that at all. 
Yeah. And the, you, you don't know what you don't know, right? And it, it almost, sure. you know, that, that, that can be a much bigger weakness than admitting your weaknesses, right? Yeah, I mean, I think being genuine is, is probably the... I've been in companies where, you know, executives and, and CEOs um, have that mask um, and carry, a, you know, this persona of the super CEO, which sometimes you have to turn on. But I think if you... If you're not a, an amazing actor, I think just being honest and as genuine as possible with everybody you work with is pretty compelling. Seems um, to have worked well so far. Well, it's a, it builds it makes it a two-way opportunity, right? So if you um, can be vulnerable or honest, um, then you get it back, and that I think builds a really interesting, special um, environment. Cool. So. If, if you had to do it all over again, mm. uh, is there something that you would do differently or what would you change if you could, knowing all the things you know now? I'd do affiliate marketing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just easier. Just easier. Just go get some mortgage keywords or something. Um, yeah, sure, a lot. But it's kind of like the same thing in your life, right? It, you, you can look back and think of all the things that you would change about um, your life, but you realize that would ultimately change, you know, who you are. So, I mean, from like a strategic uh, lens, you know, probably scaling up sooner, yeah. you know, being uh, kind of a one-man band uh, and not pursuing, you know, probably capital earlier was, you know, we should have done that. Yeah. Which I think is interesting for, like in Victoria, I find there's a lot of, you know, maybe 10 years ago there wasn't as many investors or sort of interest or companies that have done that. So there was a lot of bootstrapping, and I think bootstrapping is great for the right thing. Yeah. But I feel like sometimes here in Victoria we hold that too closely and we don't seek out the capital soon enough or you know, at all. Well, you, you can miss windows yeah. of opportunity. Right. Um, and Victoria is, you know, there's time, there's mostly, I don't know, like 99% bootstrap businesses. Uh, I hope that changes. But, again, looking back, I listened to the podcast with Leaf, uh, it was the opposite, you know, it was like raised too soon, so I don't know. I just think it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be better for the Victoria ecosystem if people had that viewpoint as an option, at least considering it, and then considering why or why not. Yeah, a little earlier. And, and probably just good advice around, here's what I've got, here's the opportunity, Here's some capital, but you know I don't I don't know. There's uh, probably a list of a hundred small items that I would uh, tweak. Sure. Um, but I think we've built something that's pretty cool, so I don't need to go back in time. I mean we're just looking forward at this point. Yeah. Great. Well, I really appreciate taking the time to tell us your story. It's been really yeah. interesting to dive in and uh, learn more. I also want to thank the listeners for tuning in today. And definitely check out our other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, wherever you can find us. Check out our website at 20mile.co or follow us at 20mileco, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. And until then, keep marching on.